First Peter chapter two verses four through ten. We've been. This will be our fourth week here, and uh, let's read that passage if we if we can. It says, "Coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God." Through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained uh, mercy. Now, as I said, we started this study four weeks ago, and we are looking at the believer's privileges. And the first privilege that we looked at in verses 4 and 5 was union. Uh, Peter says, coming to him as a living stone. And then Peter turns around and says, you also are living stones. This is Peter's way of saying that when you come to Christ in faith, you become like him. You become united uh, with him. You see, a lot of religions worship a God. But what sets Christianity apart is not that we just worship Jesus. It's not that we just obey Jesus or pray to Jesus or bow the knee to Jesus. What sets us apart is we are united with Him. He lives in us. Uh, As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What an incredible privilege. And then in the second week, we began to look at the privilege of access in verse uh, 5. Peter says this, "...you are a holy priesthood." And we actually went back, if you'll remember, and we looked at the Old Testament priesthood and we saw that they were chosen by God, that they had been cleansed from sin, they were clothed and anointed for service. And what we see is that is exactly who we are. We've been chosen, we've been cleansed, we've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we've been anointed for service uh, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And what is the nature? That's the nature of our priesthood. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Peter told us in verse 5, we are here to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what are those sacrifices? We looked at three things uh, last week. Number one, our bodies. Romans 12, 1, uh, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Number two was our praise. Hebrews 13, 15, Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. And then, of course, the third one that we talked about was acts of love. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. If you remember, I asked you last week, the coronavirus and this self-isolation and people out of work, this is a perfect, perfect time to share and do acts of good. If you want to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, now is the 
time. And I hope some of you are doing that. And remember, why are these sacrifices acceptable to God? Because they're done in reliance on the power of Christ according to the will of Christ and for the glory of Christ. And that is the only kind of sacrifice that God now accepts. Now today, we're going to look at the final two, number three and number four, the great privileges that we have as uh, believers. The first one in verse six is security. Let's read that verse together. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Now, you can see very obviously the key idea here is that as a believer, when you put your faith in Christ, you're never going to be put to shame. You're never going to be disappointed. You'll never come to some point in your life where you will find out that somehow this one that we have put our trust in has, has failed us. But I want you to notice how Peter gets to this. He, in verse 6, he says, Therefore, it is contained in Scripture. Now, what Peter's going to do here in verses 6, 7, and 8 is he's going to introduce a series of Old Testament texts um, out of Isaiah and out of the, the Psalms. And I want you to know he doesn't say it is written. And that's significant but he's because he's not going to quote them verbatim. He's just kind of kind of going to look at the general truth and kind of bring something uh, out of, of those. Now, the first text that he's going to refer to here in verse 6 was a very familiar uh, text to the, to the Jews of that day and a very important text as well. And this is Isaiah 28, 16. And it was important because it spoke of this coming Messiah. And it promised that when this Messiah came, he would be the cornerstone of this new spiritual temple that God was going to be building. Let's look at that, Isaiah 28, 16. This is the, this is the scripture that he's quoting. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Now, here's what I want you to understand from this and where Peter is getting this idea. Um, when, when men in ancient times, we're talking about this was written 2,000 years ago. When men would sit down to build a building like the temple, they would use large stones. And they would begin to cut the stones and hew out the stones and shape the stones and bring them onto the site. But there was one stone that was more important than any other. And this stone was known as the cornerstone. Now, the reason it was the most important stone was because it set the lines for the entire building. Think of uh, if you know what a plumb line is. Plumb line uh, lets us, you know, we can hang a plumb line and make something as straight. Well, that's exactly what the cornerstone did. It was the plumb line for the building. It set the direction for the sides and the wall. I've actually got a, a picture of it here of a cornerstone on one of the one of the buildings. And I think we're doing something a little different this morning so you can actually see these slides and hopefully you'll be able to see that. But this cornerstone was different. The other stones came off of it. They were built off of it. It had to be perfect. You see, if it wasn't perfect, if the horizontal angle was wrong, then the building would be skewed the farther you went out. If the vertical angle was wrong, if it leaned in a little or leaned out a little, the walls, of course, would lean in or lead out and probably eventually uh, collapse. Now, the leaders of Israel, as I said, very familiar with Isaiah 28, 16. They knew a Messiah was coming. 
In, in the time that Jesus was there, the, this idea of the Messiah was really going. Everybody knew it was coming. There had been different prophecies and different signs, and so there was a lot of excitement. They knew this scripture. They knew a Messiah was coming. They knew that Isaiah had prophesied that this Messiah would be the cornerstone for this new temple that God was going to build. Now, here comes Jesus. And one of my, I don't know if this is necessarily my favorite, but one of the, the, the scriptures in the Bible that always grabs me is Luke 4. If you want to know what these people thought about Jesus and the Messiah, as the Messiah, this scripture uh, or this story uh, tells us exactly. This is Luke four sixteen through 21. It says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, back then, of course, they didn't have chapters and verses, but the, the area that he would have been reading from was Isaiah 61. So he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And everybody in the synagogue is, is looking at him. What, what, what is he going to say? What's he gonna, what does he mean by this? And he utters the most incredible words today. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now see, they knew exactly. He's saying, I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised one. I am the Redeemer. And here's the thing. With all of their measuring instruments that they had, with all of their man-made wisdom, with all of their religiosity, they measured Jesus to see if he could be the cornerstone. Could this really be the one? Could this be the cornerstone that Isaiah prophesied about? And this is their conclusion, verses 22 to 30. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. You see, they judged him to be the cornerstone and they found him to be inadequate. They found him to be inadequate. And that's what Peter said. He was rejected by men. You see, it was unthinkable to them that this poor man, that this humble man, that this uneducated man, that this carpenter's son from a backwater town of Nazareth, it was unthinkable to them that he could be the one, that he could be the cornerstone for this uh, new temple. But let me tell you, they were terribly, terribly wrong. They were terribly wrong. He was the one. Peter said in verse 4, In the sight of God, you see, he was chosen and he was precious. The idea here in the Hebrew is the idea that God examined him too. God took out his measurements of perfection and he looked at Jesus and he said, This is my son and who I am well pleased. Let me tell you, God is building a spiritual house called the church. And the cornerstone of this house, the cornerstone of this building, the cornerstone of this church has to be absolutely perfect. And the perfect, chosen, precious stone is none other than Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you, nothing has changed since that day in that synagogue. Nothing's changed. Jesus stood up to read and he basically said, I'm the one. And they rejected him. They found him to be Inadequate. Let me tell you, the same thing is happening today. Every one of us are measuring him. 
Every one of us are looking and saying, is he the one? And every one of us will make the same choices that people made 2,000 years ago. You will either believe or you will reject. It's one or the other. Every human being has that. And Peter is saying here that the person that believes, the person that trusts in this cornerstone will never be put to shame. You'll never be rejected. See, the fact is, if you build your life on this cornerstone, you ain't got to worry about the storms. If you, if you build your life, if you trust in this cornerstone, you ain't got to worry about pandemics. If you, if you trust Him, you will never be disappointed. What, a, what a, an incredible encouragement, because Jesus will never let us down. He's never going to fail us. Now, where does Peter get this idea from? Well, let's go back to Isaiah 28, 16. Remember what he says, whoever believes will not act hastily. If you go back and actually look at the Hebrew, the Hebrew there means to run away. The idea is whoever believes in this cornerstone, you'll never panic and run away out of fear. You'll never get to the point and think, oh man, this ain't working out, I got to go. In fact, the NIV says whoever believes in him will never be stricken with panic. That's the idea that you somehow panic and run away because Jesus has let you down. Let me tell you, if you trust in Jesus, you'll never be confused. You'll never be disappointed. You'll never be put to shame. You'll never have to run away out of fear. Never. You cannot lose. Now listen, this should be an incredible encouragement to us because that's what the Scripture is saying. God is saying you cannot lose trusting in the cornerstone. You cannot be disappointed and having your life built upon Him. You cannot be put to shame. Now, that's the second one. Is secu- a third uh, believer's privilege is security. Number four is affection. Look at verse 7. Peter says this, Therefore, to you who believe, He is precious. Now, here's what I want you to see from this verse this morning. In John chapter 3, there's a man by the name of Nicodemus who comes to Jesus at, at night. And, and it's recorded in John 3, and I encourage you to go read the whole chapter because it really is an, an incredible chapter. And Jesus says something to Nicodemus. He said this, he said in verse 3, Most assuredly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, what we need to understand about that and what Jesus was trying to say to Nicodemus, that conversion to Christ or believing in Christ is much more than just believing a set of facts with your head. Yes, do I believe he was resurrected 2,000 years ago? Absolutely. Do I believe he lived and and died and ascended? Absolutely. I believe all those as, as facts. But coming to Christ is much more than just believing them as facts. You see, Jesus said, you've got to be born again. You've got to be regenerated. You've got to become a new person on the inside. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Now, here's a question I hear from many people. Well, how do I know that I've been born again? How do I know that I've become a a new person? How do I know that I've been uh, regenerated? Well, I want you to look at two scriptures from our passage today. First is verse 4 and then verse 7. In verse 4, Peter has told us, you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he's precious. And then in verse 7, Peter says, oh yeah, by the way, to you who believe, he is, and he uses the exact same word, he's precious. Now, if you connect these two verses, verse 4, he's precious in the eyes of God, 
Verse 7, He's precious as in the eyes of the believer. See, if you connect these two verses, I believe what you have here is the bottom line characteristic of a true Christian. This is, this is where it all starts. Let me tell you, believers are a chip off the old block. See, when you, when you come to Christ and you're regenerated and you're born again, you love what the Father loves. You choose what the Father chooses. You see as precious what the Father sees as precious. You see, a true Christian is always going to be marked by a love and an affection for Jesus Christ. Always. You will love Christ. By the way, this is a privilege, but it's also a characteristic of every single true Christian. Listen to the words of Jesus, John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, if that's true, he said what? You'll love me. If God's not your father, you won't love me. See, that's the bottom line characteristic of every single true Christian. The way you identify a Christian is not that they walked down an aisle some 20 years ago. The way you identify a true Christian is not that they filled out a card or prayed a prayer. The way you identify a true Christian is, do you love Jesus today? Is he precious to you today? That's how you identify a true Christian. It's not about a card or a, even a prayer. or, or Those are the, 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 the physical things we go through. But are you regenerated? Every true Christian will have an affection for Jesus Christ. You see, as I said before, true saving faith signifies a new person. And the evidence of this new person, this new nature, is an affection or a love for Jesus Christ. That is what distinguishes believers from unbelievers. And by the way, this is not something that should be reserved for some spiritual few. See, I think sometimes we look at other people and say, well, they really love Jesus, but they're just super spiritual. No, Peter says this, therefore to you who believe... He's talking about all believers. He's not talking about a, a precious few or a select few. To all who believe, you should be, uh, Jesus should be precious to you. So Peter is saying here that if you are a believer in Christ, if you are saved, if you are truly regenerated, then Christ will be precious in your eyes. And by the way, I'm just going to say this. If you don't feel that preciousness, if you don't feel that love for Jesus, if you don't desire Him the way a baby desires his mother's milk, something is wrong. Something is inherently wrong. Several years ago, I taught through um, all the parables of Jesus. Just went in the Bible and pulled out all the parables and, and talked through every one of them. And one of the ones, surprisingly, that became one of my favorites was one of the shortest parables. Um, Matthew thirteen forty four. just a few lines. It says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. I want you to notice something in that very short parable. When that man sells all that he has, he does it joyfully. Joyfully. He, he, he doesn't have to be forced to do it. He doesn't, he's not, doesn't feel begrudgingly about it. He is joyful to do it. Why? Because he sees how precious that treasure is. See, he knows that no matter what he has to pay for that field, it's a steal. Because what's hidden in that field is worth... It's not even comparable to a piece of land. Let me tell you, Jesus is that treasure. Jesus is that treasure. Nothing comes anywhere close to his worth, his value, his rarity, his, his preciousness. That's why Paul said in Philippians 3, 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. 
For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish or trash in order that I may gain Christ. You see, the true Christian sees the treasure, the, 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 the value, the preciousness of Jesus Christ, and nothing else gets in the way. Everything is about him. Now, everything that I just said to you, I hope, was beautiful. Not because I said it, just because the scriptures themselves are beautiful. And they're encouraging, and they're wonderful, and I, I could talk about that kind of stuff all day long. I want to ask Peter a question, though. Peter, why don't you just stop right there? Why do you have to go all negative on us, Peter? Why, why couldn't you just stay positive and talk about belief and preciousness and all the benefits and privileges of a believer? Why do you have to go negative and talk about the other side of the coin, which is unbelief? But that's exactly what Peter does. Look at verse 7. Let's read it together. He says, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, once again, Peter has this picture in his mind of this perfect cornerstone, absolutely perfect. And people look at it and say, nah, this is not any good, and they throw it on the trash pile. They don't want to build their life on it. They don't, they don't, they don't see it as precious. They don't see it as valuable. They don't see it as worthy. They literally shun it aside and put it on the trash file. And by the way, Peter is quoting Psalms 118.22, the stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, what's the point of what Peter is saying? What, why does he have to go and say that? Well, here's the thing. Remember, God sends his son, chosen and precious, Peter says. He's the one. He's the redeemer. He's the Messiah. But he sends him down to this earth, and guess what? Only a few believe. The vast majority of people reject him. And by the way, that's still true today. There's a wide road and many are on that road, the road to destruction. Over here is a little straight, narrow road and the Bible says only a few are on it. The many reject. So here's, here's God. He's got this great plan of redemption and he sends his son Jesus and he's precious and he's chosen and he's beautiful and valuable and worthy. And the vast majority of Israel and the vast majority of the world don't see him as precious. They don't see him as valuable. They don't see him as worthy, and they reject him. Now, why would, would Peter say this? Let me tell you, what effect, all that rejection, what effect does that have on the purposes of God? Here's Peter's point. Absolutely no effect at all. Absolutely no effect at all. Peter said this, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. See, Peter's point is that all this human unbelief all this human rejection has no effect at all on the plan and purposes of God. Let me tell you, if God plans for Jesus to be this precious cornerstone, he's going to be the precious cornerstone. And not all the rejection and all the unbelief in the world can't change that. Humans can portray him, they can desert him, they can deny him, they can mock him. They can strip him naked, they can beat him, they can put a crown of thorns on his head, they can kill him and they can bury him but they cannot stop him from being the cornerstone. They cannot stop him from being the cornerstone of this great and glorious church. See, that's exactly what Peter wants us to see. 
That's why he goes all, all, all quote-unquote negative on us, because he wants to stress to you and I as believers that unbelief cannot win. It, it can never frustrate God's ultimate purposes. And by the way, I think this is the point of verse 8 as well. If you go to the final verse that we're going to cover today, verse 8, Peter changes his metaphor a little, and he quotes one more Old Testament scripture, Isaiah 8, 14 to 15. And I'm going to be honest with you. What he says is going to be pretty shocking. What he says is going to be pretty shocking. Let's read Isaiah 8, 14 through 15 first. He, again, he reaches back in the Old Testament and he pulls out this scripture. And he says, and this is the scripture that he's, that he's quoting. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Talking about this Messiah. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and be taken. Now, what is Isaiah referring to in this Old Testament? He's talking about judgment. He's talking about judgment. He's saying that the people who reject Christ, the people who reject this cornerstone, are they're making a choice that is going to bring judgment down on their heads. And Isaiah talks about two things, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A a stone of stumbling would be, you know, there's a stone in the middle of the road and you're walking down it and you trip over it and you fall and crack your head or crack your skull. Or a rock of offense would be more like a boulder that you're just going down a road and this this boulder just falls off the, the cliff and just absolutely crushes you. Well, now here's the thing. The stone and the rock that Isaiah is talking about is Jesus Christ. And how do I know that? Because Jesus himself says this. This is a, a Luke 20, 9 through 18. This is another parable that Jesus is telling. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and he let, out, let it out to tenants, and he went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. And, but the tenants beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. And they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent yet another a third. And this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then, by the way, remember, this is Jesus talking. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, this idea of of Israel's privileges, and they knew what he was talking about, being given to another group, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and he said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See, Jesus is saying, I'm that stone. I'm that rock of offense. You see, everyone who does not believe in Jesus will be judged, and they will be judged severely. Now, why are they being judged? Well, Peter tells us in in verse 8, they stumble being disobedient to the word. You see, the fact is they don't obey the gospel. They don't obey the the word's calls to repentance. Therefore, they remain in their disobedience. They remain in their sin. 
and they are judged for it. Let me tell you, in the end, everyone will come to the rock. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everybody will come to the rock. You either come to Him as a cornerstone or you come to Him as a crushing rock of judgment. But you will meet the rock one way or another. Now, Peter's got one more thing that he wants to add. And he adds this last statement in verse 8. He says, They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. If you look at other uh, translations like the ESV and the NIV and others, they say this, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They were destined to disobey. Now, here's my question. Why would Peter add this? What's the, what's the point, Peter, of you going in and adding that? Well, let me, let me give you an example. Let's say, how many of you know an unbeliever who is proud of their unbelief. If you, if you don't know one, let me, give you, uh, uh, let me give you an example. There was a man that lived in the uh, late 1800s by the name of William Ernest Hensley. And you've probably never heard his name, but he wrote a poem called Invictus. And if you've never heard of William Ernest Hensley, if you've never heard of, of, the, of Invictus... I'm sure you've heard the lines of this poem. I want to read it, the whole poem for you. It's only four stanzas. He wrote this poem, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I've not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but it's unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me. I'm not afraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You see what William Ernest Hensley is saying, I'm in charge of my destiny. Even if I choose to disobey God, even if I choose to reject Him, even if I choose to spit in His face, I'm doing that. Nobody, nobody has any say over my ultimate disobedience. Now, Peter's answer to Mr. Hensley is this. Oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. You see, whatever you choose, whether you choose to reject or whether you choose to believe, and mark my words, your choice is real and your choice is crucial. But whatever you choose, unto this end you were destined. Unto this end you were appointed. You see, God always has the last say, even in unbelief. Now here is the lesson for you and I. We live in a society where we are absolutely surrounded by unbelief. Surrounded by unbelief. In fact, it's not just it's it's getting to the point where it's not just unbelief. There's literally a hostility toward everything Christian. There's a hostility toward people and institutions that would believe in Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, God remains triumphant. Nothing can stop His plan. Everything is working out exactly according to His purposes. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says this, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand 
and I will accomplish all my purpose. Let me tell you, nature is not sovereign. Human beings are not sovereign. Um, Satan is not sovereign. God rules over them all. So let's you and I say like Job, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You see, here's the crazy thing and what Peter wants us to see. Even if we reject him, it's, it fits his plan. I'm often, uh, I often go back to Acts chapter 4 where uh, the writer says this, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. Just They're rejecting, they're beating him, they're, they're, they're stripping him naked, they're jamming a crown of thorns down on his head, and, he, and the Bible says they're doing exactly what God had predetermined to be done. They're fulfilling his purposes. You see, in the end, folks, God is triumphant in belief, but he's also triumphant in our unbelief. God is triumphant in obedience, but he's also triumphant over our disobedience. Human beings cannot thwart the ultimate purposes of God. That's exactly what Peter means when he said the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. All the unbelief, all the rejection, all of that could not stop him from becoming the cornerstone of this great and glorious temple. Next week, we're going to stay in these verses for one more week. We're going to have a, uh, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a different tact. Uh, we're going to step out of the believer's privileges and we're going to answer a few questions called, Who am I? I would encourage you to be with us. Listen, I don't know if anybody, if you're a human being, you haven't thought about the big questions. Who am I? What is my purpose here? What am I, what am I doing here? Let me tell you, I don't know if there's another place in the Bible other than in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses, uh, verses 9 and 10, that answers those questions, all of those questions, in such a short space. So next week, we'll come back and look at those verses and answer that question, who am I? Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word does not return void. It doesn't matter if you're standing in front of 500 people live or you're doing it live stream or if they're reading it from the Bible or listening to it on a podcast or seeing it on a billboard. Your word is effective. Your word is sharp. Your word is, is it does not return void. And I ask you today, Lord, for everybody that's listening, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you go into those homes and you perform in that heart your will. You take this word. If they're out there and they're not a believer, they don't know you today. They don't see the preciousness of you. Do something in their heart today, Lord God. Father, I just ask you, don't, you do what you do. And we'll give praise and we'll give honor to the most precious, chosen, worthy, valuable thing there is. And that is your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Thank you all.